chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And I'm loving walking through Luke with you. Um, like I told the first, the first service, we're not hitting every line in Luke. And so if you're looking for a, a place in the scripture to study in your private, you know, your personal devotional time, Luke's a great, a great place to be. That's where we're going to be on, on Sunday mornings the next few weeks. And so walk through Luke uh, together with us. Um, Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, we're going to meet two people that seem at first like they're polar opposites. We're going to meet a sinful woman, and we're going to meet a righteous, religious man. And at first it seems like these are two opposite ends of the spectrum, but just so often with Jesus, he takes our perceptions and he turns them upside down. We might find that these two people aren't as different as they would think, or even as different as we would think. So Father, we just ask for you to guide us, open our hearts to your word. We ask that your word would speak to us. Lord, speak to us through your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So earlier in John chapter 7, uh, John the Baptist sent his, some of his disciples to go uh, to Jesus, and, and they asked Jesus, oh baby. Bless her heart, she's sad to leave. <laughs> we, may have a, we may have a preacher over here, so. All right, bye, baby. All right, so as, as uh, earlier in Luke chapter 7, um, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples, and, uh, and they go to Jesus, and they say, are you the one that's to come, or are you sending another one? And Jesus tells them, he says, go tell John the Baptist what you've seen and heard. The dead are raised, the, the lame walk, uh, the deaf hear, and the lepers are cleansed, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Uh, in other words, t- go, tell, go tell John that all these people that have been separated from community with God and separated from community with other people, and that all the barriers that have held them back have, have been taken away. And I'm, I'm removing all the roadblocks that kept people away from God. And he closed with those words, the poor have the gospel, have the poor have the good news preached to them. That's been the theme all the way through uh, Luke. Um, Mary pr- uh, prayed in her song when she found that she was with child. She, she said, you've, you've, uh, you've blessed uh, the, and, 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 and the humble estate of your servant. And, 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 and Jesus uh, in Luke 4 says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. And in, 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 in the last chapter, in Luke 6, where we were last week, he says, blessed are the poor. And there's this theme that he's turning the world upside down. And the people that... that, that, uh, uh, that see Jesus and acknowledge him for who he is are the people that so often are the people disregarded by the world. And so in Luke 7, the beginning in verse 36, we find Jesus at a dinner party. And he's been invited to this dinner party by a Pharisee, a respectable uh, man. And then a sinful woman walks in. And she's known by her sin, and most likely her sin is some kind of sexual immorality. And it's amazing uh, the similarities and the differences between these people that are both seeking Jesus. Uh, So let's just read the passage. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed uh, his feet with the ointments. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
Now, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Okay, so at first, respectable Pharisee, respectable uh, teacher, and this sinful woman seemed to seem like these two people couldn't be farther apart. Seemed like these two people couldn't be more different. He is known, Simon uh, the Pharisee is known by his purity and by his devotion as a Pharisee. She's known by her sin. She's just known as a sinful woman. He's welcome in any circles. He can go rub elbows and rub shoulders anywhere he wants to go. She is relegated to the shadows, and when she shows up, it's like, what are you doing here? He's looked up to as a model of moral excellence, and she is looked down on with scorn and contempt. seems like these, these people are, are, are polar opposites. Um, I, will, I will say that there's in each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a story of Jesus being anointed by a woman. And some believe that all four of those are the same story, the same woman. I believe that this is a different, uh, a, a different scenario because the woman here is specifically said to be a sinful woman. Um, and in and, uh, and the other three occasions, it's Jesus being anointed and prepared for his death. That doesn't seem to be, um, this is an act of worship going in here from this woman. And so uh, possibly the same situation, maybe, maybe different. Um, in Matthew and Mark, it, this takes place in the home of Simon the leper. Here we're told it's Simon the Pharisee. Some say, well, Simon the leper was also a Pharisee, but there's a lot of people named Simon back in this time. And so uh, maybe the same scenario being described all four Gospels. I believe this is a different, this is a different situation. But, um, but w- whatever's going on here, we see uh, these two people. And wow, these people, Simon the Pharisee, this religious upright guy, and, and this sinful woman seem so different. But what if their differences are only skin deep? What if under the surface, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman are much more alike than different? What if we're to see that these, these are two sinful people? These are two sinful people that have responded to their sin in different ways. And these are two people who both desperately need the rescue and the compassion that only Jesus can offer. Jesus rescues both the rigid and the rebellious. Jesus rescues both the rigid and the rebellious. And so if we're a rigid rule keeper this morning, or if we're a a, a rebel this morning, whichever we are, rigid rule keeper or rebel, we both need Jesus. And Jesus seeks to rescue both the rigid and the rebellious. So a couple things that that make Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman alike, um, one is they're both searching for something. They're both searching for wholeness. And, and, and they both have found what they're looking for in the person of Jesus. Uh, but maybe only one of them gets that. So the, the Simon and the woman have this in common. They both spent their lives searching for something, seeking fulfillment, seeking wholeness, seeking completion. And they have, like all of us, they've tried all these different ways of finding that fulfillment outside of Christ. And so the Pharisee, what he's looked to for fulfillment, what he's looked to uh, uh, to make sense of a messy world, and, and haven't we all kind of tried to make sense of a messy world in recent days? Uh, he has looked to rules to make sense out of a messy world. He says, if I keep these rules, and if I can get other people to keep these rules, then life is going to make sense. He's trying so hard to make sense out of a dark world, but now he finds himself captive to the very rules that he thought would set him free. He's so captive to the rules that he can't see the fulfillment of all the rules sitting across the table from him. He doesn't see him for who he is. He's tried to build a wall around God, and he's found himself on the wrong side of that wall. And, and the woman 
Again, some assumptions have been made about her, but, but, but most likely because of the way she's described as a sinful woman and the way people respond, most likely she's a woman who has been sexually immoral. And she's known by her sexual immorality. Um, but, uh, but while the Pharisee had, had sought to find fulfillment in rules, I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that maybe she has sought to find fulfillment in relationships. And her life has been chaos. We can imagine it's been one heartbreak after another, most likely beginning early on. She's known betrayal. She's known loss. She's known pain. She's known heartbreak. She's known all these things many times and often at the hands of good, upright men. She knows rejection. She knows regret. She knows scorn. She knows shame. The Pharisee and the sinner, the dutiful and the desperate, the rigid and the rebel, they seem so different, but like all of us, they're both searching for meaning. They're both trying to make life make sense. They're both looking for completion. And just like when we get to Luke 15 and we read about the prodigal son that leaves home and his older brother, and they seem so different, under the surface they're both in need. The prodigal and the older brother are both, they both have the same need. Opposites aren't always as opposite as they seem. This man and this woman are alike in that they've spent their whole lives seeking. And they haven't even known what they were looking for. And now the one they've been looking for is right in front of them. Both, both Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman are willing to take a risk. What risk does the Pharisee take? Well, do we normally see Pharisees in the gospel inviting Jesus to their house for dinner? That's not normally what we see happen. Normally the Pharisees are jumping out of the shadows and saying, aha, we caught you Jesus doing something wrong. Or they're asking him questions in the synagogue trying to trick him. Or like Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night so nobody would see. So Simon is taking a huge risk here. He's invited Jesus to his house for dinner. For a Pharisee, this was a big deal. Jesus poses a threat to everything this Pharisee stands for. Jesus is letting all the wrong people into the kingdom. Jesus is saying things that a Pharisee cannot abide. But yet, Simon the Pharisee, for all of how we quickly we want to kind of distance ourselves from him, and I think I know why we want to distance ourselves from him, because we see ourselves in him, he is curious about somebody he disagrees with. He doesn't just unfriend Jesus on Facebook. He invites him over for dinner. Wow. Wow. What would our world look like if we unfriended fewer people and showed hospitality to more people? If we can't have a civil conversation about guns, about politics, how are we ever going to engage this world about Jesus, who's way more controversial than any of these other topics? If we can't be people who sit around a table and engage people we disagree with, how are we ever going to engage this world? With Jesus. So he could have just gotten offended and unfriended. I didn't mean for those things to rhyme, but it's kind of cool that they did. Um, he says, let's have a meal together. We could all stand to be more like Simon. This is hospitality. He shows hospitality to Jesus, who he disagrees with. Who do you need to break bread with? Who do you need to invite to your dining room table? Who do you need to show hospitality to? If we if, 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 if we uh, can't do that, again, how are we going to engage the world with Jesus? I wonder what the world would look like if the body of Christ did more of this. I wonder if there would be less people offended. I wonder if there would be less people crucified. I wonder if there would be less people getting tragically shot. 
if instead of just disagreeing and being offended, we sat down and had dinner with people that didn't see things the way we do, if we broke bread. This is an incredible thing. It's an incredible risk that Simon has taken, and I want to honor that. The woman risks. I mean, we can see her risk, right? She pursues Jesus. She goes where Jesus is, and it's a place that she knows she's not going to be welcome to. She knows Simon's not going to show hospitality to her. Can you imagine this? There's this, there's this dinner party going on. Everybody's reclined. They don't sit in chairs like we, 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 uh, we do. They're, they're kind of reclining at tables here. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and the woman kind of walking down the street, she finds that she hears that Jesus is there. She just kind of goes in. Everybody's looking at her. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody thinks they have her figured out. And she bows down at Jesus' feet, and she's just crying and weeping. And there's so much tears that she's just washing his feet with her tears, the work of a slave. And she's mopping up the tears with her hair. And then she takes this bottle of oil, this ointment that's costly that she's brought with her, and she breaks it open, and she pours it, and she anoints his feet. I mean, this this is an intimate and let's face it, awkward moment. Can you imagine being at this dinner? Well, I mean, this, this is, I mean, the awkwardness in the air is so thick right now. She risks. But notice that even though hospitality is not extended to her, she still goes where Jesus is. We have, church, we have a mandate to be hospitable. But we also have a mandate to go and seek Jesus, even if hospitality is not extended to us. She didn't go there to impress people. She didn't go there to say to everybody, hey, look at me, I'm here. She goes there because Jesus is there. And she goes whether she's welcome or not. Church, I mean, can we hear that? She goes whether she's welcome or not because Jesus is there. And she didn't go to be seen by everybody else. She she, She went to pour out worship to the only one that was worthy of it. Why have you come today? Well, those people don't like me. Well, she could have said that. But she didn't go for them. She went for Jesus. She found him. She takes a risk. We have a responsibility to be hospitable. We have a responsibility to pursue Jesus no matter what. She didn't go to that house to win approval. She goes to worship the one that's worthy. The woman and the Pharisee are both dealing with shame. They both risk. They're both searching for something. And they're both dealing with shame. What is shame? The dictionary, shame is actually very difficult to define And we may not know how to define shame, but whether we acknowledge or not, shame probably defines us. And shame, according to the dictionary, is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Painful emotion or feeling of humiliation or distress. Shame is that voice that says, man, why are you such an idiot? We know that voice? You're so stupid. Shame's the voice that says, man, you, look, look at how ugly you are. Look at how fat and dumb you are. Or shame's the voice that says, you think you can do that? Ha! Everybody's just going to laugh at you when you try to do that. Are we familiar with this voice? Anybody? Anybody familiar with this? And it, it's tired kind of to each of us in each of our story. We sang about our story earlier, and your story has these unique hooks where shame has gotten its hooks in, into you. Now, let's think about the, the Pharisee's shame for a minute. Let's think about Simon's shame for a minute. A lot, of, a lot of tears this morning. Let's think about Simon's shame for a minute. He's, he's thrown this elaborate party, and he's invited the, the rabbi that everybody's talking about, even though you know, he doesn't agree with Jesus. 
and he's got everything in order, and Simon's built his life on rules and things being proper, and, and then this woman comes in and just throws a, a wrench in the whole thing, and then she's doing this intimate thing, and we see Simon's shame come out. Well, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he, he must not be a prophet, because if, if we knew shamed people, shame people, and that's exactly what's going on here. If, he, if Jesus knew, he wouldn't be letting this woman touch his feet like that. Can you imagine how embarrassed Simon is when this happens? Can you imagine how just appalled he is? Let's think about her shame. Oh, hold on, back to Simon. What, what do you think Simon's face is looking like in this moment? How does your face look when you're ashamed? Maybe it looks like this. Maybe it starts to turn red. And then maybe when pride gets mingled with shame, I'm exposed, I'm a fool, everybody thinks I'm an idiot, and I'm going to prove I'm not. And then the face is this. And the woman, man, what a risk she took going. And she's not looking in everybody's eye. She's not holding her head up. She goes in, and she doesn't go for Jesus' face. She goes for his feet. Yes, she's being humble. Yes, she's serving. But she goes for his feet because that's what she sees because she hasn't lifted up her face and looked at anybody in a really long time. That's shame. That's shame. And everybody's dealing with it. And all the crazy people in your life, including you and me, are working out their shame. And when those people in your life are doing crazy things, they're doing it because they're ashamed. And we don't talk about it. And we have a hard time even defining it. But shame is this emotional tool used by evil to isolate you from God and to isolate you from people. Adam and Eve, we go back to Genesis 2.25, they were naked and they felt no shame. They were totally vulnerable and open with one another and they were not ashamed. They were not hiding. And as soon as they rebelled against God, what did they do? They cover themselves up and they hide from God and they hide from each other. And we do that exact same thing today. We hide from each other. And we hide from God. And we say, if people saw you for who you really are, they wouldn't love you, they wouldn't take you, they wouldn't accept you. And the thing is, like, our instinct to hide isn't entirely wrong. What did we just sing? How blessed is he who hides in him. The place that we can go and hide is in God. And that's where we are found. That's where we're seen. We have this deep fear of being seen by God and this deep fear of being seen by each other. And that's why we put up all of this fakeness, whether we're a Pharisee or whether we're a rebel, we all do it. And we're all playing out our shame story. And we're all trying to pretend and we're all seeking solutions to our shame apart from the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And... The thing is, we live in this self-esteem culture, and we're all trying to convince, okay, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, that's okay. And we're all trying to boost each other's self-esteem up, but self-esteem, is a, that's a skin-deep issue. Shame is a heart issue, and Oprah can help you with your self-esteem. And I'm not, I'm not trash-talking Oprah. She can help you with your self-esteem, but she can't do anything for your shame. There's only one person that can carry your shame, and that's Jesus Christ. He bore it on the cross. He carried it on the cross. It died 
on the cross. It went to the grave, and then he rose victorious over it. But we struggle and we seek solutions to our shame outside of Christ, outside of the gospel, outside of his death, burial, and resurrection. How do we know the woman and the Pharisee are both dealing with shame? One, they're human. And two, we can see it in in this interchange of what's going on here. And Jesus wants to set both of them free. Jesus has compassion for both of them. He has compassion for you and me, whether we're rebels or whether we're rigid. However our shame has taken taken form, He wants to set us free. And only He can do that. We are created by God to be relational, to be vulnerable with each other, to be known by each other, and to be known by Him. Shame says, stay away. Isolate. It pushes us to isolation. But the very thing we need in order to overcome shame is to be known by God and by each other. Kurt Thompson in his great book, The Soul of Shame, wrote, to be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. Everybody's got it over stuff I did or stuff I didn't do or stuff that was done to me. We carry shame and only Jesus can, can carry that. What do we see the woman do? She's broken. She takes that bottle of expensive ointment and she breaks it. And that's how the good stuff came out. It had to be broken first. A heart that's truly broken before God, that hurts so much more than shame. But a heart that's truly broken before God, that leads to freedom. Where shame leads to further despair. Just a couple of scriptures, um, and we could talk about this for weeks or months, but a couple of scriptures. Um, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. The sacri- David writes this after his deep sin. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that's what we see in this woman, just a broken heart before Jesus. Shame keeps us stuck in shame. And so when I see somebody at the grocery store, I say, hey, how you doing? Do you think I get a hey, how you doing back? What do I hear back? Sorry, I hadn't been at church in a while. Um, it's just been really busy and, uh, and I'm going to be back. And, and, and I used to think, that's a good thing. Hadn't been in church in a while. You need to feel ashamed about that. And then I learned that shame actually reinforces the behavior we're trying to overcome. So the shame of pornography or the shame of addiction or the shame of running from one relationship to the other, the shame of being out of church, whatever that shame is, it keeps me locked into the pattern that's making me ashamed. Brokenness, true brokenness is the alternative. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul writes, Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Shame leads to deeper shame. I realize I'm ashamed. Man, I've been living in shame, and I'm ashamed of that. But deep sorrow, godly grief, Paul writes, it actually leads to salvation. It leads to repentance. It leads to freedom. It leads to life. And so this woman is modeling brokenness. She's just pouring it out to Jesus. And Simon, the one we're quick to say is the bad guy in the story, he's like you and me. And he's resisting brokenness with everything he's got. He's just trying to keep it together. He says, Jesus must not be a prophet if he 
If he was, he'd know about this woman. And so Jesus says to Simon, verse 20, um, verse 41, or verse 40, sorry, says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Hang in here with Simon. Simon's, the story's not done with Simon because Simon's still listening to Jesus. Even after this crazy experience and awkward moments happened, and Simon's still listening. That's more than I can say for probably most Christians in America. Simon's still listening. He's still got his ear out to say, what's this guy going to say next? Are we like Simon? Are we still listening? And Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When he, they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Simon's hospitality fell short. But she has wet my feet with her tears, and she's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She's done the work of a slave. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, Jesus is not saying that she's loved a lot. And that is why she's been forgiven. He's not saying she's earned her forgiveness. But because she has come face to face with Jesus and she has received forgiveness from him, the fruit of that in her life is she loves much. How do I know that I've really come to grips with how forgiven I am in Christ? Do I love him? Do I love people? Do I love through gritted teeth? Or do I love, I'm going to pour out everything I've got on Jesus and anybody that needs it. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. And he tells the woman, so love is the fruit of forgiveness. Jesus tells the woman, pay attention to what he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Have we taken those words lightly? Have those words become old news? Your sins are forgiven. He says, your faith has saved you. Not your good works, not any of that. Your faith, your response to God's grace, your faith has saved you. Now he says, go in peace. In Hebrew, he probably said, shalom. Shalom is what was shattered by shame in the garden. And now in Christ, shalom takes the place of our shame. Where Christ is taking you. See, in Adam... Shalom ceased to be our foundation and shame instead became just foundational to our lives. But in Christ, what he's done, what he's doing, where he's taking you is that no longer will shame and no longer does shame have to be the foundation of your life. But now your life can be characterized by shalom. That's restoration. Your life can be characterized by deep peace with God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Your sins are forgiven. Hear those words for you. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted him? Have you responded to his grace and faith? And if so, he says to you, your sins are forgiven. You're divorced from your sins. Your faith has saved you, healed you, restored you. Go in peace. And let shalom, not shame, define your life. 
Jesus rescues the rigid and the rebellious. The band is going to lead us in a final song. Um, Pay attention. Pay attention to that shame voice. Listen to it. Because a lot of times we're not paying attention to it and it's just pulling our strings. Listen to it. And when it says whatever it says to you, you're an idiot, you're a moron, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're too short, you're too tall, you don't have what it takes, you're never going to do it, who do you think you are? Everybody's, everybody's laughing at you. Everybody knows this about you. Take that voice and say, what does the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ have to say to this? What is more deeply true about me? As you look around yourself, people around you are doing hurtful things, crazy things, and they're living out their shame. And you can't necessarily fix that, but you can know that. And you can say, you know what? I know the struggle. (laughs) I'm a Simon too. (laughs) I know that struggle. And we can have empathy for people that are stuck in their own prison. We serve a Lord who said, I've come to set captives free. Captives to the law, captives to sin, captives to shame. Whether we're rigid, whether we're a rebel, He's come to set us free. Shalom can be the deepest, truest thing about you. That's where Christ has taken you. What does the cross say? What does the resurrection say to our shame?